Chapter 10, Part 3 of American Men of Mind by Burton Egbert Stevenson. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by William Tomko. American Men of Mind by Burton Egbert Stevenson. Chapter 10, Inventors, Part 3. Years ago, in 1790 to be exact, an Italian scientist named Galvani, experimenting with the legs of a frog, happened to touch the exposed nerves with a piece of metal, while the legs were lying across another piece. He was astonished to see the legs contract violently. Further experiments followed, and the galvanic battery resulted. Years later, our own Professor Henry discovered that if an insulated wire carrying a current of electricity was wrapped around a piece of soft iron, the latter became a magnet. Out of these simple discoveries came the electric telegraph, and, still more wonderful, the telephone, by which the human voice may be instantly projected hundreds of miles, not only intelligibly, but with every tone and inflection reproduced. In an age of wonders, this is surely one of the greatest. On February 14, 1876, two applications were made at the Patent Office at Washington for patents upon the conveyance of sound by electricity. One was filed by Elisha Gray, the other by Alexander Graham Bell. They were practically identical, but it was Bell's good fortune to be the first to make his device practically effective, and so he may fairly be considered the inventor of the telephone. Alexander Graham Bell was born in Edinburgh, Scotland, in 1847, the son of the famous Alexander Melville Bell, the inventor of the system by which deaf people are enabled to read speech more or less correctly by observing the motion of the lips. The family moved to Canada in 1872, and Alexander Bell came to Boston, where he soon became widely known as an authority in the teaching of the deaf and dumb. The reproduction of the human voice by mechanical means interested him deeply, and his study of the construction of the human ear with its drum vibrating in response to sound vibrations gave him the idea of a vibrating piece of iron in front of an electric magnet. He was, however, very poor, and had no money to expend in experiments. So, poor indeed, that when attacked by illness, his hospital expenses were paid by his employer, and so friendless that during his illness no one visited him except two or three pupils from his school. He persevered with his experiments with such rude apparatus as he could make himself and the first bell telephone was brought into existence with an old cigar box two hundred feet of wire and two magnets from a toy fish pond in an improved form it was shown at the centennial exhibition of eighteen seventy six where sir william thompson pronounced it the greatest marvel hitherto achieved by the electric telegraph as is always the case, the public was slow to appreciate the importance of the invention, and as late as 1877, Bell was unable to secure $10,000 for a half-interest in the European rights. The rapid growth of the business in this country is almost without parallel in history, and no invention has added more to the convenience of modern life. A distinguished scientist one day asked the late clerk Maxwell, what was the greatest scientific discovery of the last half-century? And Maxwell answered, without an instant's hesitation, that the Gram machine is reversible. 
Probably the whole scientific world will agree with him, for that discovery meant that power will not only produce electricity, but that electricity will produce power. Let us see how that has been applied. Falling water is one of the most powerful agents in the world, and at a great waterfall like Niagara, millions of horsepower go to waste every day. So at the foot of Niagara, great powerhouses have been built, where the power of the water is converted into electricity. The electricity is conducted along wires for hundreds of miles to the great industrial centers, and they're converted back again into power. In other words, the water of Niagara is today turning machinery in Buffalo and Albany. The same method of producing power, the cheapest that has ever been discovered, is being installed all over the world, and will in time produce a revolution in manufacturing processes. The vital mechanism in the production of this power is the dynamo, and it is to Charles F. Brush of Cleveland, Ohio, that its development is principally due. He was interested in electricity from his earliest years, and when he was only 13, distinguished himself by making magnetic machines and batteries for the Cleveland High School, where he was a pupil. During his senior year, the physical apparatus of the school laboratory was placed under his charge, and he constructed an electric motor having its field magnets as well as its armature excited by the electric current. He devised an apparatus for turning on the gas in the street lamps of Cleveland, lighting it and turning it off again, thus doing away with the expensive process of lighting them and turning them out by hand. After graduating from the University of Michigan with the degree of mining engineer, he returned to Cleveland, where, in 1875, his attention was drawn to the great need of a more effective dynamo than the clumsy and inefficient types then in use. In two months, Brush had made a dynamo so perfect in every way that it was running until taken to the Chicago Exposition in 1893. Six months more of experimenting resulted in the Brush arc light, and in 1879 the Brush Electric Company was organized. A year later, the first Brush lights were installed in New York City, and now there is scarcely a town in the country which does not pay tribute to the inventor. Let us turn for a moment from the field of electricity in which America has been preeminent to another in which Yankee ingenuity has also led the world, the railroad. It was in this country that the sleeping car, the diner, the parlor car were first used. No other country affords such luxury of travel, and no other country has added to railroading any device comparable in importance to the invention of George Westinghouse, the air brake. Before its introduction, to stop a train, brakes must be set painfully by hand, and even then were not always effective. Now, the engineer, by pulling a single lever, sets the brakes instantly all along his train, and so effectively that the passengers sometimes feel as though the train had struck a rock. More than that, should any accident occur, breaking the train in two, the brakes are instantly set automatically all of which is done by the power of compressed air working through a series of pipes and air hose beneath the cars. George Westinghouse's father was superintendent of the Schenectady Agricultural Works, and it was there that the boy found his vocation. Before he was fifteen, he had modeled and built a steam engine and followed that with a steel railroad frog, which was so great an improvement over the frogs then in use that it was soon widely adopted 
and brought the young inventor both money and reputation. He moved to Pittsburgh as a center of the iron and steel business and began the manufacture of his frogs there. One day he came across a newspaper account of the successful use of compressed air in the digging of the Mount Cenis tunnel in Switzerland, and the thought occurred to him that perhaps a railroad train could be controlled by the same agency. He worked over the problem for a time, but when he mentioned his idea to his friends, they were inclined to think it absurd to suppose that a rubber tube strung along under the cars could work the brakes effectively. However, Westinghouse was not discouraged, but continued to experiment, and the air brake as we have it today was the result. Which brings us to the most remarkable genius in the field of invention the world has ever known. The man who has made invention, as it were, a business, whose life had been devoted to rendering practical and useful the dreams of other men, who has reduced invention to a science, Thomas Alva Edison. There are some who are inclined to belittle Edison's achievements, because some of the greatest of them have been founded upon the ideas of others. He is best known, for instance, as the inventor of the modern incandescent light, but the discovery that light may be obtained from wire heated to incandescence in a glass bulb from which the air has been exhausted was made when edison was only two years old experiments with this light were made by a dozen scientists but it remained a mere laboratory curiosity until edison took hold of it and with a patience ingenuity and fertility of resource in which he stands alone made it a practicable efficient and convenient source of light that the incandescent light, as it is known today, is his through and through, cannot be questioned. It is as a scientific inventor that Edison likes to be known. He abhors the word discoverer as applied to himself. Discovery is not invention, he once said. A discovery is more or less in the nature of an accident, while an invention is purely deductive. In my own case, but few, and those the least important of my inventions, owed anything to accident. Most of them have been hammered out after long and patient labor, and are the result of countless experiments, all directed toward attaining some well-defined object. There is, however, one modern marvel for which Edison is wholly responsible, both for the initial idea and for its practical working out, the phonograph. But let us tell something of his early life before we relate the achievements of his manhood. Born in a little village in Erie County, Ohio, in 1847, Edison was early introduced to the struggle for existence. His father was very poor, being, indeed, the village jack-of-all-trades, and living upon such odd jobs as he was able to procure. The boy, of course, was put to work as soon as he was old enough, and of regular schooling had only two months in all his life. At the age of twelve, he was a train boy on the Michigan Central Railroad, selling books, papers, candy, and fruit to the passengers. He managed to get some type and an old press and issued a little paper called the Grand Trunk Herald, containing the news of the railroad. One day, he snatched the little child of the station master at Port Clements, Michigan, from under the wheels of a train, and in return, the grateful father taught the boy telegraphy. It was a turning point in his career, for it turned his attention to the study of electricity, with which he was soon fascinated. At 18, he was working as an operator at Indianapolis, but he was from the very first more of an inventor than an operator, and his inventions sometimes got him into trouble. 
for instance, at one place where he had a night trick, he was required to report the word six every half hour to the manager to show that he was awake and on duty. After a while, he rigged up a wheel to do it for him, and all went well until the manager happened to visit the office one night and found Edison sleeping calmly while his wheel was sending in the word six. But he nevertheless developed into one of the swiftest operators in the country, all the time devising changes and improvements in the mechanism of telegraphy. His first great success came with the sale of an improvement in the instruments used to record stock quotations, which enabled these tickers to print the quotations legibly on paper tape, and this success enabled him to get some capitalists to finance his experiments with the electric light. The arrangement was that they were to pay the expense of the experiments and to share in such inventions as resulted. For the sake of quiet, he moved out to a little place in New Jersey called Benlow Park and built himself a shop, then began that remarkable series of experiments, one of the most remarkable in history, which resulted in the perfection of the incandescent lamp. The problem was to find the material for the filament which would give a bright light and which would, at the same time, be durable, and with this end in view, hundreds and hundreds of different filaments were tried. The difficulties in the way of this experimenting were enormous, since the light only burns when in a vacuum, and the instant the vacuum is impaired, out it goes. At one time, all the lamps he had burning at Menlo Park, about eighty in all, went out, one after another, without apparent cause. The lamps had been equipped with filaments of carbon and had burned for a month. There seemed to be no reason why they should not burn for a year, and Edison was stunned by the catastrophe. He began at once the most exhaustive series of experiments ever undertaken by an American physicist, remaining in his laboratory for five days and nights, dining at his workbench on bread and cheese, and snatching a little sleep occasionally when one of his assistants was on duty. It was finally discovered that the air had not been sufficiently exhausted from the lamps. Again, success seemed in sight, but soon the lamps began acting queerly again. Worn out with fatigue and disappointment, Edison took to his bed. Ultimate failure was freely predicted, and the price of gas stock rose again. In five months, the inventor had aged five years, but he was not yet ready to give up the fight. And at last it was won, and the incandescent lamp placed on the market. It has not displaced gas, as some people thought it would, but it is the basis of a business which made the inventor sufficiently rich to realize his great ambition of building himself the finest laboratory in the world, where the most expert iron workers, woodworkers, glass blowers, metal spinners, machinists, and chemists in the world find employment. Every known metal, every chemical, every kind of glass, stone, earth, wood, fiber, paper, skin, cloth, may be found in its storerooms, ready for instant use. The library contains one of the finest collections of scientific books and periodicals to be found anywhere. These are the tools, and with them, Edison is constantly at work upon a great variety of problems. The first thing he turned his hand to after his installation in his new laboratory was the phonograph. The patient thought and experiment, extending over many years, lavished on this wonderful invention, are almost unbelievable. The idea had come to him years before, 
when he had worked out an instrument that would not only record telegrams by indenting a strip of paper with the dots and dashes of the morse code but would also repeat the message any number of times by running the indented strip of paper through it naturally enough said edison in telling the story the idea occurred to me that if the indentations on paper could be made to give off again the click of the instrument why could not the vibrations of a diaphragm be recorded and similarly reproduced i rigged up an instrument hastily and pulled a strip of paper through it at the same time shouting hello then the paper was pulled through again and listening breathlessly i heard a distinct sound which a strong imagination might have translated into the original hallo that was enough to lead me to a further experiment i made a drawing of a model and took it to mr cruzy at that time engaged on piecework for me i told him it was a talking machine he grinned thinking it a joke but he set to work and soon had the model ready I arranged some tinfoil on it and spoke into the machine. Cruzy looked on, still grinning. But when I arranged the machine for transmission and we both heard a distinct sound from it, he nearly fell down in his fright. I must admit that I was a little scared myself. The words which he had spoken into the machine, and which were the first ever to be reproduced mechanically, was the old Mother Goose quatrain starting, Mary Had a Little Lamb. After that rude beginning came the phonograph, with which Edison has never ceased to experiment. He has made improvements in it from year to year, until it has reached its present high state of efficiency. A state, however, which Edison hopes to improve still further. In addition to the two great inventions of the phonograph and incandescent lamp, which we have dwelt upon here, many more stand to his credit. In fact, he has been the greatest client the patent office ever had. Nearly 1,000 patents have been issued in his name. At the age of 63, he shows no sign of falling off in either mental or physical energy. And, no doubt, more than one invention has yet to come from Llewellyn Park before he quits his great laboratory forever. No one can ever guess at the future of electrical invention. The recent marvelous development of the wireless telegraph, by which the impalpable ether is harnessed to man's service, is an indication of the wonders which may be expected in the future. It was our own Joseph Henry who, in 1842, discovered the electric wave, the induction upon which wireless telegraphy depends. He discovered that when he produced an electric spark an inch long in a room at the top of his house, electrical action was instantly set up in another wire circuit in the cellar. After some study, he saw and announced that the electric spark started some sort of action in the ether which passed through floors and ceilings and all other intervening objects and caused induction in the wires in the cellar but wireless telegraphy was made a commercial possibility not by any great scientist, but by a young Italian named Marconi. Already experiments with wireless telephony are going forward, and another half-century may see all the labor of the world performed by this wonderful and mysterious force which we call electricity. From earliest times man has longed to navigate the air. He has watched with envy the free flight of birds, and has tried to imitate it, usually with disastrous results. The balloon, of course, enabled him to rise in the air, but once there, he was at the mercy of every wind. More recently, balloons fitted with motors and steering gear have been devised, which are to some extent dirigible, 
but the real problem has been to fly as birds do without any such artificial aid as balloons provide. Experiments to solve this problem were begun several years ago by Professor S. P. Langley of the Smithsonian Institution under government supervision and pointed the way to other investigators. He proved, theoretically, that air flight was possible, provided sufficient velocity could be obtained. He showed that a heavier-than-air machine would sustain itself in the air if it could only be driven fast enough. You have all skipped flat stones across the water. Well, that is exactly the principle of the flying machine. As long as a stone went fast enough, it skipped along the top of the water, which sustained it, and even threw it up into the air again. When its speed slackened, it sank. So the boy on skates can skim safely across thin ice, which would not bear his weight for an instant if he tried to stand upon it. So, theoretically, it was possible to fly, but to reduce theory to practice was a very different thing. Professor Langley tried for years and failed. He built a great machine, which plunged beneath the waters of the Potomac a minute after it was launched. All over the world, inventors were struggling with the problem, but nowhere with any great degree of success. It remained for two brothers, in a little workshop at Dayton, Ohio, to produce the first machine which would really fly. Orville and Wilbur Wright were poor boys, the sons of a clergyman, and apparently in no way distinguished from ordinary boys except by a taste for mechanics. They had a little workshop, and one day in 1905 they brought out a strange-looking machine from it and announced that it was a flying machine. The people of Dayton smiled skeptically and assembled to witness the demonstration with the thought that there would probably soon be need for an ambulance. The gasoline motor with which the machine was equipped was started. One of the brothers climbed aboard and grasped the levers. The other dropped a weight which started the machine down a long incline. For a moment it slid along, then its great forward planes caught the air current and it soared gracefully up into the air. That was a great moment in human history, so great that the crowd looking on scarcely realized its import. They watched the machine with bated breath, and saw it steered around in a circle, showing that it could go against the wind as well as with it. For thirty-eight minutes it remained in the air, making a circular flight of over twenty-four miles. Then it was gently landed, and the exhibition was over. Great crowds flocked to Dayton after that, expecting to see further exhibitions, but they were disappointed. The machine had been taken back to the shop, and the young inventors announced that they were making some changes in it. No one was admitted to the shop, nor were any other flights made. One day, the inventors also disappeared, and months later, it was discovered that they had built themselves a little shop on a deserted stretch of the sandy North Carolina coast, and that they were carrying on their experiments there, secure from observation. Enterprising reporters tried to interview them, and failed. But ambushed afar off, they one day saw the great machine soaring proudly in a wide circle above the sands. A photographer even got a distant photograph of it. There could be no doubt that the Wright brothers had solved the problem of flight. But not for two years more were they ready for public exhibitions. Then, in 1908, they appeared at Fort Myer, Virginia, ready to take part in the contest set by the United States government. No one who was present on that first day will ever forget his sensations as the great winged creature rose gracefully from the ground and circled about in the air overhead. Again and again flights were made, sometimes with an extra passenger, 
great speed was attained and the machine was under perfect control but an unfortunate accident put a stop to the trials for one day a propeller blade broke while the machine was in mid-air and it struck the ground before it could be righted the passenger a member of the united states signal corps was instantly killed and orville wright was seriously injured meanwhile the other brother wilbur had gone to europe where first in france and afterwards in italy and england he created a tremendous sensation by his spectacular flights they were uniformly successful not an accident marred them the governments of europe were quick to secure the right to manufacture the aeroplane kings and princes vied with each other in honoring the young inventor and when he returned to the united states city state and nation combined in a great reception to him and to his brother as these lines are being written in august nineteen o nine another series of flights has been concluded at fort myer they were successful in every way in fulfilling the government tests and the wright's machine was purchased by the government for thirty thousand dollars everywhere airship flights are being made successfully and it is only a question of time until the aeroplane becomes a common means of conveyance wilbur wright declares that it is already safer than the automobile and it would seem that there is in store for man a new and exquisite sensation that of flight surely america has cause to be proud of her inventors end of chapter ten part three end of american men of mind by burton egbert stevenson recording by william tomcoe